Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are this you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 16th. Today, how Kirsten Gillibrand will use her Me Too cred in her presidential run. Plus, the famine in Yemen and the sounds of climate change. When Senator Kirsten Gillibrand announced Tuesday night that she was running for president in 2020, she didn't do it with some slick campaign video or at a rally with a bunch of supporters. Instead, the Democrat from New York went on a late-night talk show. So... I'm just curious, uh, do you have anything you would like to announce? Yes, I'm filing an exploratory committee for President of the United States tonight. Tonight. It's something different. It's something different from what other people were doing. And it was something that she delivered on a national platform that could distribute her message for her. Stephen Colbert has a lot of loyal followers. A lot of them are... Democrats. A lot of them are people in uh, early voting states. Jenna Johnson is a political reporter who's been covering the steady rollout of presidential announcements. And she said what made Gillibrand's announcement interesting was that she did the whole Colbert thing, and then she went straight to upstate New York. I'm going to run for president of the United States. Wednesday morning, she was in Troy, New York, which is where she lives. That's where her campaign headquarters are going to be. And she basically got up at a podium in front of a diner and said the same exact thing that she said on Colbert, delivered the message again in a venue that's more typical. And I know that I have the compassion and the courage and the fearless determination that is necessary to get this done. So what has Kirsten Gillibrand's political trajectory been so far? She got involved with politics early on, volunteering on Hillary Clinton's campaign for Senate, raising a lot of money for Democrats. And this was all while she was working as a lawyer in Manhattan. And then at one point, she decided to move back to upstate New York and run for office, run for Congress, and won. Won in a pretty conservative, pretty heavily Republican area. And Throughout her presidential campaign, we can expect her to point back to that race as evidence that she can appeal in rural areas, she can appeal to conservatives. At the time, a lot of her positions were much more conservative than they are now. And then there's this big moment in her life in 2009 when Hillary Clinton became the Secretary of State and her Senate seat came open. And the then governor of New York... I am appointing her to the United States Senate... ...appointed Gillibrand to fill that seat. Kirsten Gillibrand. Thank you, Governor, for this incredible honor. I appreciate the opportunity that you have afforded me and the trust that you placed in me. She was a lesser-known name at the time. There were a lot of big-name Democrats in New York who would have loved that seat. And very quickly... We've seen her become much more liberal on a lot of issues. And she's even talked about going from being a congresswoman from upstate New York to being a senator who represents the whole state has opened her lens, has uh, given her greater exposure to, to bigger issues. 
A big one being that she had an A rating from the NRA, and she's down to an F. (laughs) In just a matter of years. I mean, a pretty radical departure from, like, her previous reputation as a centrist blue dog Democrat. Exactly. Exactly. She was a member of the blue dog Democrat. She was, you know, had been opposed to gay marriage. These evolutions that she's gone through... Trump's campaign staff has already kind of seized on these. They see these as a weakness, as something that they want to draw a lot of attention to. That she can be criticized as a flip-flopper or just kind of pandering to the left-wing part of the party. Exactly, exactly. And she was asked about it this morning at the diner and will continue to be asked about it, I'm sure. And her response was that people can change, people can evolve. Now that she's announced that she's running for president, what is her policy platform? A lot of her positions are positions that a lot of Democrats have been talking about lately. Climate change. She would be game for, you know, what people are calling the Green New Deal. Yeah, exactly, which would invest very heavily in clean energy jobs and infrastructure and and things like that. She's also agreed not to take any corporate PAC money during this election and has said that she doesn't want super PACs (laughs) supporting her, although candidates can't really control that. And part of that is to kind of fight this reputation that she has as someone who used to raise a lot of money from Wall Street. She's also kind of crafted a reputation as the champion for Me Too. She had advocated for getting rid of Senator Al Franken. She has also spoken out about sexual assaults in the military. Not all commanders are objective. Not every single commander necessarily wants women in the force. On college campuses. We kick kids out all the time for cheating. We kick them out for not paying their tuition. We should be able to kick them out if they are found responsible for sexual assault. Is that something that she's planning to highlight on the campaign trail? Oh, definitely. There was one magazine that actually called her the senator from the state of Me Too. And these were issues that she was fighting for long before they became such a big national conversation. And so you can totally expect her to continue tying those two things together and and reaching out to these activists. And I wonder if part of that is, you know, obviously because... That makes her an attractive candidate for women, for female voters, but also that it just makes her like the anti-Trump, right? Like this is a president who has had many Me Too accusations and like maybe this is the candidate who is most oppositional to that. Yeah, exactly. And she has put herself out there as a stark contrast to the president and someone who's not afraid to challenge him and be attacked by him. When you look at her voting record, She has voted against Trump appointees, against legislation that the president supports at a much higher rate than many of her Democratic colleagues. But I believe the urgency of this moment now is we have to take on President Trump and what he is doing. I believe he is literally ripping apart the fabric of this country, the moral fabric. And you've got to restore that decency and our leadership in the world. So at this point, it's become clear that there will be multiple women running for president in 2020. We have Senator Elizabeth Warren, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, and now Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. How does it change the landscape for the campaign with several women running in the same race? Gosh, this is what I'm really eager to see. And it's not just them. There are many more women who are expected to probably also get in. And given that in 2016, there was such a national conversation about the way that the media reports on female candidates, the way that voters evaluate female candidates versus other candidates, 
is it going to be different now that there's more of them? <laughs> and with Gillibrand, she's really kind of playing up that she's a mom. She had her two young sons with her outside the diner this morning. And she even came out and said what sort of voters might be attracted to her, saying that she thinks she can appeal to Trump supporters, saying that she thinks she can appeal to suburban moms. Well, I find that so interesting because in a world in which there are multiple women candidates, it feels like there's going to be more gradients of like what womanhood means and how it can be represented like in a political candidate that that we haven't really seen before. That like Kirsten Gillibrand gets to be mom woman and then Kamala Harris gets to be like badass prosecutor woman. And like these are different things. And Yeah, exactly. I think it's going to be just reminding America that women are not one thing. And I think one problem we've already seen is that a lot of people like to compare any woman now running for president to Hillary Clinton. And problems that Hillary Clinton had, how are these female candidates going to do it differently? And so let's see over the next couple months as these women show who they are, show how they're different, show how their backstories are different, how they approach issues different, show how even though they're all Democrats, how they vary on on issues. Is that going to kind of change this way that, that we approach female candidates? Thank you so much, Jenna. Of course. Thanks for having me. Jenna Johnson is a politics reporter for The Post. She'll be following Gillibrand this weekend as the senator starts a three-day tour of Iowa. So I've been to Yemen 16 times, starting in 2000, until most recently it was last month. My first time in Yemen was purely by chance. This is Siddharthan Raghavan, the Post's Cairo bureau chief. He's recalling his first trip to Yemen in October of 2000. I was in Cairo at the time to a visit by President Bill Clinton. He was meeting Arab leaders in Egypt. And when the USS Cole was bombed... Good morning. This week, an apparent terrorist attack claimed the lives of brave American sailors off the coast of Yemen. I basically rushed down to Aden. And when I got there, I was immediately met by a security minder. I'm of Indian origin. So the minder immediately zeroed on me because he was convinced that I spoke Arabic and I was faking. Since then, Sadarsan has covered Yemen through it all. The rise of al-Qaeda, the Arab Spring and the subsequent revolution, and then most recently, the country's civil war and the humanitarian crisis that followed. So Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East, and it's been like that for many, many years, long before the current humanitarian crisis. There had always been a high level of poverty amongst the people there. But I'll tell you, the whole crisis, humanitarian crisis, really started going downhill after the current civil war began. The civil war Siddharthan is talking about started in 2015 between the Yemeni government and the opposition movement known as the Houthis. According to Siddharthan, the Houthis are widely believed to have backing from Iran. 
So Saudi Arabia, along with the United Arab Emirates, they formed a coalition, and they entered the war that same year to side with the Yemeni government. They've received weapons and logistical support from the U.S., and since then, thousands of civilians have been killed in airstrikes, and more than 20 million people don't have enough to eat. Sadarsan went back to Yemen last month, where he visited a medical clinic in the northern town of Aslam, which is held by rebels. As a parent, I was completely affected by it. This could have been, you know, my own children in that situation at any moment. I mean, they were as young. In fact, Yemenis kind of look like people from India as well, so it stirred up a lot of emotions. The medical clinic wasn't treating traditional injuries of war. Instead, they were treating starvation. And that's where Sadarsan heard about a three-year-old boy named Abdo. You know, once we started talking to the head nurse, this Makia, because many of these kids here had just arrived by chance. Hmm. You know, because in Aslam, it's so poor that most parents living in these remote areas, mountainous areas, right, could not bring their children to the clinic. Just to get the money to be able to transport them to a medical center. The clinic was free. It was just the travel costs, right? And this place is so poor that even $10 is beyond the reach of most villagers, a $10 transport ride. So we started talking to the nurse, and then the nurse started telling us how she got a phone call from a local health worker near this village called Al-Jarb, saying that he had a case he had a three-year-old boy who weighed like 10 pounds, and he needed help. At his a three-year-old that weighed 10 pounds? That's Abdo. Hmm. That is Abdo. That's, that's Abdo Saleh, the boy I wrote about. So the local health worker had just spotted him in the village doing some sort of survey and immediately told the, the father, look, you've got to bring your boy to the clinic. And Abdo's father told him, look, I've got no money. I've got other kids to feed. The money I'm making is... I can barely buy food for my other kids, you know, and I can't afford the transport. So when I heard this story, I just thought, oh, my God, you know, I wanted to go see Abdo. And it turned out that Makia herself had taken a decision to go and fetch Abdo herself. By then, she had seen photos of him, so she knew the boy's condition. She could tell just by looking at him that, like, if this kid doesn't get here, he's going to die. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, the minute she saw him, she said, look, you don't bring him to the clinic, he's going to die within a week. What was it like for you when you, when you got there? I mean, you know, it brought you to tears. I mean, uh, Abdo was sitting in this cot, this wooden cot in his family's compound, and he was just lying there. And you could see every bone was visible. His hands were really, really thin. His toes were so tiny, you know, as small as raisins. And initially I thought, there's no way this boy is three years old. You know, I mean, he looked, he didn't look much more bigger than a, than a baby. He was in such poor condition. And because of the weakness, because he couldn't eat, because he was so weak, his immune systems had broken down. You could hear the, the rasping of his breathing. He was breathing like an old man. You know, I'd seen some really bad cases. This was as bad as anything I'd seen. And the thing that was coming to mind is that all of this could have been preventable. I mean, just a few miles away, the, the markets were filled with food. You can get anything you want, including baby milk and anything to help children. And it was simply a matter of their parents could not afford. The prices, because of the war, had just soared dramatically. And the incomes of 
the people have remained the same, which all combined together has made food out of reach for millions of people, including the villagers of Al-Jarb. You know, I, I think that when we think about famines, we think about famines that are a product of climate or weather or drought, you know, that there just is a fundamental lack of food. But what's going on in Yemen is a very different type of famine caused by a very different type of circumstance. Exactly. You know, the Saudis have basically fought the war in several different manners. They're fighting a military conflict where they're backing various militias and political groups fighting against the Houthis, as well as the Yemeni government. At the same time, you know, they've waged what critics call an economic war. Basically, they've imposed restrictions on food, fuel, medicines, and other vital products. And why are they doing that? Well, the main reason for that is, you know, in their minds, to try to squeeze and strangle the Houthis, who control most of the North. You know, and that's and the North is where eighty percent of the population lives. So the idea was for them is by trying to strangle them economically, it could make the Houthis unpopular with the people. Maybe there might be you know, more willing people to rise up against the Houthis. But also, secondly, it was also a way to cut what the Saudi coalition believes are the weapon supplies to the Houthis by putting strict restrictions on, especially on the sea routes and land routes. The Saudis believe they are preventing the Houthis from receiving weapons from Iran. But of course, what ended up happening is that it has driven up the cost of fuel and food. The fuel part is the most important thing here. Because the price of fuel has gone up, the restrictions have also led to shortages, further driving up costs. They have made transport costs higher, which makes the food costs higher. So it's a chain reaction of misfortune. The point where like, when you get to the markets, the prices of food have gone up as much as 200, in some places 300%. Meanwhile, while all this is happening, jobs have been vanishing and incomes have remained the same. For example, Abdo's father, he was making anywhere from $1 to $2 a day, but he was making the same amount before the war as well. And this is how he was providing for his family. But now that $1 to $2 a day is buying him a third of what he used to buy, or even less, and that means he can't feed all his kids. So Saudi Arabia, in their attempt to try to win this war or weaken this, this rebel coalition in Yemen, they are basically trying to starve them out, you know, both by limiting the imports of food, but as you're saying, more importantly, limiting access to fuel. And that affects whether you're able to transport food and whether you're able to kind of continue industry and jobs. Yeah. But like in the process of trying to starve out the rebels, they're also starving out everyone else who lives there. Yeah, absolutely. Food has become a weapon of war in, in, in this conflict. So what happened to Abdo and his family? So in the village, the nurse basically decided the very, at the end to just put him in the car and bring him to the clinic, bring Abdo, right? They brought him back to the clinic in her vehicle. It was about a 40-minute drive away. And the very first thing, you know, they immediately started weighing him and they started to check the circumference of his arms and they started to do other checkups as they would treat any other hunger-stricken kid. It was a very crowded clinic. They put him in a bed with another kid. In that clinic at the time, there were two mothers and two children sleeping to a bed. You know, that was how crowded the clinic was. So he was there and they started feeding him. They started giving him nutritional supplements and all that. And that's when we left. 
since we left Yemen, we've been tracking his progress. So I've just spent about 10 days at the clinic. He started getting better and better. I saw photos of him. You could see that he was getting plumpier and the fat returning to his body. You could see him reemerging again as any other kid, you know, the kid he was. But the problem was that his condition grew a bit worse, his medical condition. He started to have some small seizures. So Abdo was admitted into Jamuri Hospital, which is the main hospital in, in Hajjah, in the malnutrition section. But then the hospital told them that they didn't have the ability to treat the seizures and apparently some of the brain issues he had. And they told the father to take his son back. So even though he's not currently starving or at risk of starving to death, he still has long-term issues that he's going to have to deal with. See, most children do not die of hunger. They die of the complications from hunger. They die from the illnesses that they get because of their weakened situation they can't fight off. Sadarsan Raghavan is the Post's Cairo bureau chief. Abdo is still waiting to get further treatment from a hospital in Yemen's capital city, Sana'a. And now, one more thing. A story from reporter Abi Selk about how scientists are learning to hear the sounds of climate change. That's the sound of Antarctic snow. Specifically, seismic vibrations recorded at a particular spot on the Ross Ice Shelf, a floating chunk of ice about the size of France on the western edge of Antarctica. Wind slams into dunes and reverberates through snow. The vibrations are normally too low for us to hear. These are sped up to about 90,000 times. These vibrations have been going on for thousands of years. Now listen to this. Hear how the pitch drops and it gets quieter? That's not normal. This is snow from January 2016, when a huge heat wave hit the South Pole and all the snow on the Ross Ice Shelf melted a little. Turns out, melting snow sounds different from healthy snow. Wait, it gets worse. That sing-song warble is totally gone by the third week of January. Sounds almost like a dial tone, or maybe an air raid siren. That's not a bad analogy, because it's essentially the sound of global warming. Colorado State University researcher Julian Chaput put these sound clips together for us. It was his team that recently discovered we can hear the Ross ice field melt. First, it's hard to see an ice shelf melt until it's too late. The top layer of snow just gets kind of slushy, then refreezes after the heat wave. If that happens enough times, the foundations of the ice shelf start to weaken. The entire thing finally disintegrates, very rapidly, like a ship blowing apart in a storm. Secondly, an unexpected disintegration of the Ross ice shelf would be extremely bad. That particular shelf acts like a cork, keeping massive glaciers on the Antarctic mainland from sliding into the ocean. If the Ross ice shelf fails and the glaciers are set free, then scientists expect oceans to rise several feet. So now we can hear the health of the ice shelf. Healthy snow. 
not healthy snow. The snow healed after the heat wave of January 2016. Experts don't expect the Ross ice shelf to disintegrate anytime soon, but we'll keep listening to it. And as global temperatures are expected to rise, don't be surprised if that alarm goes off again. Avi Silk is a features writer for The Post. That's it for today's show. Join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports and learn more about the stories in this episode at WashingtonPost.com slash PostReports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.